Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we come today with all sorts of concerns and struggles, uh, distractions. We recognize that we are an easily distracted people. We ask that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to focus on your word and your call to us through it, that we may become more like Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Wow. Well, it's a tremendous opportunity uh, to see you in your new spot. I haven't been, uh, I've walked through the building, but I haven't worshipped with you here before. Uh, Now, I realize some of you are new and we're never in the old spot. Uh, But uh, all I can say for those folks is this is a vast improvement. (laughs) Uh, I was being shown around by uh, a young father uh, this morning, uh, and he pointed out, there are more restrooms. What more could you want? (laughs) So I'm just really glad to be here to see where you've landed. Years ago, a congregation was started called Saddleback with a guy named Rick Warren, and he talked about the fact that in about the first 15 years of their life together, they'd been in 17 places. Uh, And this was, much of that was before the internet. And he said people had to show up on Sunday morning uh, to find out where we were going to be next week. (laughs) He said, you know, we we only wanted people who were smart enough to find us. Uh, But it's great that you've landed in something slightly more permanent uh, than that. What I'm going to share with you this morning, or pieces of it, are things that I'm sharing around the diocese, because uh, I think there's two themes. One, the context we're in, uh, in terms of the church in America, and then the other, um, one of the opportunities for for ministry that I'm trying to get embedded in the life of the whole diocese. Um, And so I've shared some of this in other contexts, and some of you have heard some of this. I operate on the theory of redundancy, that if you're like me, you need to hear something more than once to get it. Um, And uh, uh, so so, uh, no apology for the redundancy. Last summer, my wife Marcia and I went to visit my hometown, uh, Westport, Connecticut. And it was a very bizarre experience. I hadn't been there for a number of years. And as we walked around town, it had the experience, I had the sense that, well, it was home. I mean, I, I could find my way around. But so much has cha- had changed that I couldn't recognize it. I mean, uh, the, the private businesses that had been there when I was growing up in little storefronts were all taken over by the chains now, uh, which I could have seen in any mall in America. Um, the YMCA were. I went to swim, uh, learned to swim, uh, and, ha- and there were, I had dancing classes, that was fun. Um, and uh, it is now, was changed into a stores and condos, this one building. It, everything was changed. And it was very disorienting, it was somewhat disappointing. We, we were gonna spend a good part of the day there and we just spent a couple hours and just felt like we're done. Uh, now. The reason I share that with the larger diocese is that the culture has changed so much in the last several decades that, in a way, we as Christians who've been around for a while uh, feel that same sense of disorientation and discomfort. But as I come to share with many of you, you don't know that old culture. It would be as if I were taking you to my hometown and say, that used to be this store, and that used to be this store, and that, and your reaction would have been, So what? This is where it is now. (laughs) 
But the world has changed. And one of the things that we have to be looking at is how is, does the church operate in the culture that we're in now? We're in what many have called the end of Christendom, when you had that, that merger of, the, of Christianity and, and kingdom, uh, hence Christendom, um, uh, where while they weren't exactly the same, there's no country that's been fully Christian uh, in any sense or any culture that has been, there was more overlap than there is now, more common understanding, more common values. Um, I was thinking a lot about this. In, in, when I was growing up, basically the assumption is that most people in the United States would be in a church on a Sunday morning. And, if, and so if you wanted to preach the gospel, you got into churches, and if they weren't very alive, you brought alive people in there, but you'd still be reaching most of the population. And I'm thinking, where did we get that from? And the answer is we got it as people came from Europe. In Europe, most countries, not only were you expected to be in church, you were mandated to be in church. Uh, in, in Calvin's Geneva, you were fined if you weren't in church. So people just expected that people would be there. So we didn't have to work too hard on evangelism because most people were in the, at least in some proximity to the gospel. Now, obviously, there were Jews and others in other communities, and occasionally you'd cross into those communities, and there were people who were in church that you'd want to reach. Uh, but, but that change was that by and large, most of the culture had some regular church experience, some regular exposure to at least parts of the gospel. And that has changed. And the way we have to operate has to change. Um, I've quoted from a book that I've recommended to your leadership, really to all of you, it's interesting, called Canoeing the Mountains. And the image is from Lewis and Clark's expedition across the United States as they were meant to find a water route to the Pacific, going through the various rivers. Uh, and they'd been told that there were going to be mountains ahead, but they were thinking Alleghenies or Appalachians, they were used to mountains and near usually little rivers that could get you through those mountains. And, and all of a sudden, they came up over one rise and saw the Rockies for the first time. And they realized, we are not canoeing these mountains. There's not going to be that kind of way through. The whole dream of a water route to the Pacific died in that first look. And they realized, if we're going to get to the Pacific, which they were required to do, that was part of their job, we have to totally rethink how we're doing this trip. So the author takes that analogy and says, the church in the United States, given the change in the culture, has got to rethink the way it operates. We're not going to be able to canoe through these mountains. Uh, one subtitle in the book uh, early on of one of the chapters is, the world in front of you is nothing like the world behind you. And that's what we need to learn. One writer says, if Western societies have become post-Christian mission fields, how can traditional churches become then missionary churches? Now, that's not quite so much an issue for you at our Incarnation because you're not a traditional church to start with. But it does affect our, our way of en, uh, educating uh, seminarians or, or the people to be ordained. It affects the way we interact between various congregations. We have to rethink everything. And we're in the midst of that. But as we face the mountains, the good news is that the love of God seen in the cross of Christ hasn't changed at all. Human hearts haven't changed at all. The need for the gospel haven't, hasn't changed at all. 
Well, what does need to change? Well, first of all, our point of view. We have to see that the world around us is a mission field and that we are training disciples who are first and foremost missionaries. That's not only true for adults, but that's the way we need to be thinking about our children. We are training our children to be missionaries. The word catechize comes from the uh, Greek concept of teaching. We have a catechism. Uh, Tim Keller and others have said this in multiple ways. The reality is either we catechize our kids to be Christians or the culture will catechize them to be like the culture. So the challenge is to become missionaries where we are. Now, looking at the Acts passage, which uh, I proudly say was well read by my granddaughter. (laughs) What we see is a wonderful missionary passage. And and I can't dig into it because I want to focus on one thing that I've been sharing elsewhere. But uh, in some ways, the primary issues of cross-cultural ministry take place in this passage. Um, It begins with persecution. The church in Jerusalem is forced out by the persecution to the various parts of the world. Now, I don't know about you, but you have to give them some credit. Granted, they didn't want to be persecuted or killed. There's nothing wrong with fleeing persecution. persecution. Jesus makes that clear, that if you get the option, go. Uh, But if it had been me and I had been persecuted for my faith in Jerusalem, I might not have talked about it when I went anywhere else. (laughs) But instead, they go out to the the rest of the world and start sharing the gospel. They go go to Cyprus, they go to Antioch, they just spread out. And an interesting thing takes place uh, that mission leads to more mission. Uh, They go to Cyprus, and apparently what happens is that some of the people from Cyprus then turn around and say, well, we've got to go to Antioch. Now, others have gone directly to Antioch, if you look at the passage. But the ones from Cyprus arrive and say, well, we're reaching the Jewish community here, because the gospel went initially to the Jewish community. But uh, when they get uh, there, these ones from Cyprus look around and say, well, you're missing a whole group of people. You're missing the Hellenists. Now, who are the Hellenists? They were Greeks or Gentiles, uh, speaking Greek, uh, part of the Hellenistic culture, uh, but who had been hanging around the Jews. They weren't Jews themselves. They weren't circumcised. They were in a sort of me, uh, a place between. And what happened is these Christians from Cyprus get there and they say, we can reach these folks. And the news gets back to Jerusalem and, they, and they, the reality there is, what's going on? What are these reports? How is this working? There's probably some question, could this really happen? Although you've already had Peter reaching a similar group when he reaches Cornelius. But they want to check it out. So who do they send? Interestingly enough, uh, they send Barnabas. Why Barnabas? Well, first of all, he was a respected leader in that uh, uh, church in Jerusalem. He'd been very generous. Barnabas was a nickname they had given him, meaning son of encouragement, because he was so encouraging, so trusted, so generous. You can look back earlier in Acts. And he's from Cyprus. So he's going to get it. Um, So a couple of things to notice here. First of all, uh, God takes the worst 
and uses it for his glory. God takes persecution and uses it for the spread of the church. We should not get discouraged about where the culture is now because whatever pressure is coming on us as Christians, God will use if we allow him for the positive spread of the kingdom. So persecution creates a greater mission. Some of the first missionaries were essentially refugees from Jerusalem. And mission is contagious. As it goes out, it keeps going out, and they begin to find pockets that have never been reached before. Also worth noting that mission is strategic. They take a step back and say, who's the perfect person that God has prepared to go check this situation out in Antioch? And the answer is Barnabas. Faithful Jew, well-trusted, but on the other hand, gets the uh, people that have been sharing the gospel into Antioch. Another thing to notice that after Barnabas is there for a while and sees what God is doing and celebrates it, I love his attitude. I mean, just it, it talks about he, he notices the grace of God. He's, he's noticing what God is doing, and he could have had a negative reaction. What are these Gentiles doing becoming believers? But instead, no, this is God. God, the Lord is up to something here. But instead of just sort of going on, and please remember that Barnabas is there with other Christians who've already brought the gospel, but Barnabas takes a step back from the situation and says, I need a partner. I need somebody at a higher level than even the people that have already brought the gospel. I need somebody who can get in the harness with me and really help this uh, set of people who are becoming uh, believers. And so he goes to get... Saul, he knows that if he has a partner, the effects are going to be more than doubly effective. The the impact is going to be more than doubly effective. Great uh, year of ministry together. And then you see at the end of the passage, and then I'm going to circle back, you see at the end of the passage that one of the signs of this new community that's being raised up of both these Hellenistic, Greek-speaking, Greek-cultured Uh, Gentiles and these Jews is that they're generous. So at the end of the passage it says this, one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. So the gospel's gone out from this persecuted church in Jerusalem, and now the word is there's going to be famine, and so they said, well, we've got to make sure we feed our brothers and sisters back in the Judea, Jerusalem area. And they did so, sending it by the elders, to the elders, by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. And the footnote there is, for us, for any Christian community, is they have compassion, and compassion always requires sacrifice, or it's not real compassion. James says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Compassion without, without sacrifice is not true compassion. But now I want to circle back to consider one point, the idea of Barnabas going to get uh, Paul. Or at this point, he's called Saul. Let me be clear about this, because I had it wrong most of my life. Saul is his Hebrew name. Paul is his Gentile name. It's not that he changed his name, which is what I would, you know, he became a believer in Jesus, and God changed him so much, he changed his name. And there's lots of name changing going on in the Old Testament. 
You know, Jacob becomes Israel, for example. Abram becomes Abraham. That's not what's happening here. It's just that here's a man who has, who can live in two different cultures, and he has a different name in each one. Perfect example of this is I have a friend uh, in uh, Miami, a priest there. He is Jorge to his Hispanic congregation and George to his English-speaking <laughs> congregation. That's what's going on here. So he goes to get Saul, or later Paul, Paul as he gets further into Gentile ministry. Now, this wasn't, this, he didn't just, you know, ring him up or text him saying, can you get over here? I looked it up this morning. From Antioch to Tarsus, where Paul was, is 45 hours of walking. It would be a rough equivalent of walking from here to McClennan. I was just trying to come up with a contemporary example. Why would he go to that trouble? Because he knew his need for a true partner. You know, remember Jesus sent the apostles out two by two. Why did Jesus do that? I mean, these guys have been following Jesus around. Couldn't they just go out one by one? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons, and that's what I want to be thinking about this morning, this idea of being uh, in, in partnership and relationship with each other. Two by two. Well, first of all, at the deepest level, within the Trinity itself, we see a, a complex of relationships, Father, Son, and Spirit. That the true nature of God is more complex than a purely monolithic God. Not that we understand it completely, but we see that happening. There's a relationship of Father, Son, and, and Spirit together. So, in some sense, community demonstrates the nature of God. Another reason is that no one has all the gifts. Barnabas and Paul, while they had huge ministry together, I guarantee you if you'd sat them down, you would have said, yeah, he's better at this and he's better at this. Another is that we all need encouragement from others. Marcia and my wife has just been dealing with clergy couples, and one of the things that we taught them is, if you're a clergy couple, you need to find other clergy couples to fellowship with because you're in a unique sort of stage and not, you can't share everything with the people, members of your congregation, uh, and you need the perspective of others who are in the same place. We need encouragement. Genesis 1 talks about our need for each other. In Genesis, uh, well, in Genesis 2, Genesis 1, you have seven times, uh, excuse me, six times the phrase, it is good, after God is in the midst of creating things. It is good, it is good, each, after basically each day. And then a seventh time, when he's all done, he says, it is very good. And things seem to be moving along, right along. But then you get to Genesis 2.18, and God says that there's something that's not good. He said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now, it's not just about marriage. It's about the fact that we are wired to be in community. It's the way God made us. It's not good to be alone. One of the issues always before us in, in the justice uh, and punishment issue is the issue of solitary confinement. Uh, it goes back to 1829 in Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia. They decided to put the prisoners in separate cells, not to have uh, 
much community with each other, and the rates of mental breakdown uh, began to go up. And Charles Dickens visited a penitentiary during this time during his travels to America, and he wrote this. He's, he, well, he described the, quote, slow and daily tampering with the mysteries of the brain to be immeasurably worse than any torture of the, of the body. So what Dick and see? He realized solitary, being alone messes with your brain. It's so contrary to our nature. Barnabas knew the power of community. He lived out community in Jerusalem. He knew that we were made to be with others and to work with others. And so what I want to be thinking about, if we think about that idea of being with others, I want to talk about Christian withness this morning. You've heard about Christian witness, but what is Christian withness? That's what I, I realize I'm making a word. Uh, so forgive me. I'm actually hoping that 10 years from now somebody will write a book with that word that one of you shared with somebody else, and all of a sudden it'll be the word. <laughs> but withness is critical for mission. The former Surgeon General named Murthy wrote about what he called the loneliness epidemic. He said, we live, I'm quoting, we live in the most technologically connected age in the history of civilization, yet rates of loneliness have doubled since the 1980s. So think of Jesus reaching out to isolated people, to tax collectors, to women with immoral lifestyles, to lepers, to the paralyzed. Well, there's another kind of disease today, loneliness. Mother Teresa said, the greatest disease in the West today is not TB or leprosy. It is being unwanted, unloved, and uncared for. She goes on to say, we can cure physical diseases with medicine, but the only cure for loneliness, despair, and hopelessness is love. And she closed by saying, there's a hunger for love as there is a hunger for God. It's built in. So what would happen if not just incarnation, but as a diocese and a larger American church, what would happen if we decided that a key part of our primary mission would be to take the time to be with lonely people, including each other? About 50, over 50% now of American adults are single. To give you the contrast to the old days, in 1950, that number is 22%. The Christian response to a lonely world is hospitality. I've recommended uh, before the book, Surprise the World, Five Habits of Highly Missional People. One of the habits was to eat with somebody. And I know that's a value in this congregation, to get regular meals with people. But I want you to get it in context why it's so important. I had the experience last summer of going to Texas where I was on sort of a retreat, a uh, Christian ministry. They gave me a house there, lots of other people around. Um, and they invited me to meals and the, being welcomed in their homes was huge for me instead of being alone all the time. But I have to tell you, as somebody who's been married for uh, almost uh, 47 years, going back to my little house and turning the key and going in alone for the rest of the night was very hard. But most adults are opening 
the door to an empty house or an empty apartment. If the greatest poverty in the West is loneliness, then we are called to be the people to live with others, withness. So who is lonely that you can be with? Or are you lonely and can you begin to understand that it's not only not good for you, but it's actually not good for your brothers and sisters of Christ to leave you alone? Who is lonely that you can be with? Can they be with you when you go shopping or head to the movies or watch a ball game on TV or when you eat in your house? Can you go with them to a doctor's appointment or be their ride home? I'm not just talking about other Christians now. I'm talking about people that in your lives. I became a Christian because a Christian couple invited me over and over again to be with them to hang out with them, to watch the original Mission Impossible. It was a TV show once. (laughs) The husband played tennis with me. I ate in their home. They took me out to dinner. They made me part of their trips. I could sense Jesus in them, even though I did not know him yet. Paul writes in Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 2, he says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Now, in one hand, he's saying we're an offering to God. That's, that's part of the image there. But he's also saying people can sense Christ in us. They can smell him, if you want to use that language. Now, that doesn't mean they'll necessarily accept him. It's to the ones being saved and the ones who are perishing. There will be people who react negatively as well. But they have to be with us to catch the scent. Jesus understands loneliness. Isaiah 53.3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. That's loneliness. He was misunderstood by his disciples and abandoned by them when he faced death. And then he experienced the greatest loneliness possible. While on the cross he was naked to the human eye, he was covered with our sin. And in Psalm 22, using the words of Psalm 22, he cries out to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, that's the part that's recorded in the gospel. Jewish principle. If a part of a scripture is quoted, you're supposed to download the rest of the passage. It's called a remez. It's a hint. So, When you hear those words from the cross, it's not like, well, he's applying one verse to himself. He's applying the whole psalm to himself. And you can see that if you look at Psalm 22. But the next line is, why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? That's what he's saying to the Father. You're so far away. I'm so lonely. He's lonely for our sake. He experienced loneliness wearing our sin So that because of the cross, we could be forgiven and be reconciled to God, to be in relationship. And Jesus promises at the end of Matthew's gospel, after the Great Commission, he says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. I am with you. 
How is he with us? Well, we don't quite know. Uh, we know that that's the heart of what's going on, though. John 17, he prays to the Father, Father, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Somehow or another, we are brought into God himself, and he into us as we come into new life in Christ. We have a unique relationship with God and with, uh, especially with the Father in ways that we don't get. In Acts chapter 1, because this is all an Acts series that you're in the midst of, he says, you will receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. So that we're going to be in the Father and the Son and the Spirit, but in the Father and the Son particularly. The Holy Spirit is going to come on us or be in us. And Jesus himself has promised to be with us. We are never alone. We are in the Father and the Son. The Spirit empowers us. Jesus is with us. And he calls us to be with him as we reach out to be with others. So today, pray for someone for you to be with, to spend time with as Jesus is already with you. And I might add that going back to that verse from 2 Corinthians, we are the aroma of Christ to God. It's we. There's something special about people sense the Lord as they see Christians interacting with each other. I don't understand how it works. I can just tell you that the first general principle of evangelism from, from my experience, from biblical experience, is getting non-Christians into the company of Christians. You don't have to be doing anything particularly spiritual. But even the way you apologize to each other is kind of unique. They sense it. So concentrate on what does it mean for us to be witnesses through witness. Pray for someone for you to be with. And my conviction is that the Lord will guide us through the mountains. Let's bow our heads for prayer. Father, we ask your Holy Spirit to be upon incarnation in powerful ways. We ask for the challenge to... uh, be witnesses who are with others uh, to, to guide us as we move forward. Pray that for the diocese and the larger church in America and beyond. Uh, help us to be the ones who are looking at the loneliness epidemic and that we're pouring our lives out sacrificially out of compassion uh, to stem that epidemic and bring people into the kingdom. So we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.